I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. Some are famous, some are rich, some are both, and some are neither. But they're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. You'll hear life stories of celebrated TV and film stars, musicians, producers, comedians, composers, and rock stars, to name a few. And that's just a start. We also explore the surprising journeys of entrepreneurs, doctors, business people, athletes, and CEOs you may never have heard of, but we'll be glad you did. Sitting in with Leanne and I today is one of our executive producers, Kim Garner. So let's begin. Today, we welcome one of rock and roll's legendary, undisputed gods, Roger Daltrey. Before being named one of the best voices in rock and roll by Rolling Stone magazine, he grew up in working-class England, where he went to school and met a couple of classmates who became his bandmates in The Who. Besides singing lead vocals for one of the most influential rock bands of all time, Roger is also a well-known solo act. He has appeared as an actor in dozens of roles— oftentimes playing himself in TV, movies, and stage productions. Today, Roger spends a lot of his time performing and touring, in addition to working with me supporting our shared philanthropic passion, Teen Cancer America. He has been granted countless honors and awards, including being knighted a commander of the British Empire. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Roger Daltrey. Some of the most basic things that I think a lot of people know, but I think we'd like to make sure all of our listeners know, is where you're from. Where were you born? What was your early life like? And I know you were born at a super interesting time in history. So if you could speak about that a little bit, that would be great. I was born in Shepherd's Bush in London, March the 1st, 1944, in the middle of a V1 raid. Oh, man. <laughs> That's when the V1s were coming over, which were then followed by the V2s, which were even worse. You couldn't hear them. Oh, man. The V1s, apparently, oh, really? according to my mum and dad, you could hear them coming and you only used to worry when you you stopped hearing them. Mm. But the V1s, you, the V2s, you just it was just a big bang. Oh, you never you, knew that. That was it. And uh, and I lived in a street, there was a road that, well, if you look at the bomb map of London, our house was part of a block of about 20 houses, but both sides of us had disappeared. So we were very lucky, very lucky to um, to have got through that period. And I've often thought of... How hard it must have been for my mum being pregnant. My dad was away in. Was you know, your dad away because he army. was in the service? My dad, my dad was in the service. In the he was a, a gunner in the Royal, Royal Artillery, and um, I just can't imagine that can't generation. Imagine. I've got so much admiration for them. They're incredible people. I had two sisters, mm-hmm. and one died. My younger sister died when she was thirty-two of breast cancer. Mm. Traumatic thing for the family. But I came from a very big family. My mum had, uh, you know, I think it was four, five sisters, or four sisters. Of, I can't always get this wrong. <laughs> four sisters and two two or three brothers. Wow. But so many of them got killed. I, I never met quite a few of our family. What amazing time to be mm. to be born in 1944, in England in 1944. Yeah, it was, a, it was a, probably the worst year to be born in, in a lot of ways, because the rationing that we'd gone through the war in since 1939 to 1944, our rations were meagre, to say the least. I mean, I think a family of four were allowed a quarter of a pound of meat a week. 
<laughs> a week. <laughs> a week. Wow. Every, you know, everything was rationed. Everything was in short supply. But then 1945, when the war ended, America changed its policy to the British. And I don't know why this happened. It's quite an in- interesting part of history. But the Germans had their country rebuilt for free. We had to pay for us to be re- rebuilt. And with, to make matters worse, we had to share our rations with the Germans. Which, Who you know, just the, the, the you. British, you know, they were in a worse state than us. There wasn't a murmur of protest about it. We got on with it. Well, we used to have a loaf of bread. We now had a half a loaf of bread and the other half was, was mixed with chalk. So that's how bad it got in mm. 1945. Why a lot of my age group are very, very short, very skinny and got bow legs. Wouldn't stop a pig in a passage. <laughs> <laughs> so you were born in 44 when the war is over. What's well, your the war's first... over in 45. In 45. Yeah. So at what age do you remember and what was your life like after the war when you are now a young boy? Fabulous. Mm. It was great. Real community. Everybody was poor, financially poor, socially rich. You know, and this was another thing about today's world that I don't understand. We put value on money, but community seems to go out the window a lot of the times. You know, people get jealous of people with loads of money. I don't know why. And people with nothing, they need to be looked after, but it's very difficult to get what they need to them. Uh, because the, the first thing they need to do is to start helping themselves a bit more. But I don't know how to sort that one out, but it really annoys me that people worry about all these billionaires. Don't, I don't give a damn if someone's got 10 billion. They've got to spend it, they've got to invest it, and they've got to employ people. The tragedy of all that is, of course, with, with all those people with those enormous sums of money, they could do such creative things with it. Yeah. And usually they're people with a, a fixation of just making more, 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 mm-hmm. more, more. I'd love to go back to the idea of socially rich, but mm. not financially rich. Can you paint that picture of what... Well, we were, we were a community and everybody supported each other. We knew our neighbours, you know, very close. The street life was uh, very close because most people had to share houses, housing shortage. After the war, it was actually really acute. Our playgrounds were the most wonderful adventure playgrounds you could ever have because it was the old bomb sites. You know, health and safety would have a nightmare. (laughs) So so we, you know, the kind of places we used to play as kids, you know, the basements are filled up with water. There were, you know, walls falling over, but bits of wood and stuff. And it was just the best playground a boy could ever have to work right. to, to, to play in. Did your mum let you run? Could the mum stop us running? Yeah, you know what I mean? You know, like, <laughs> this like, was a street. You know, they, yeah. you know the, the, that, that's the thing on a street when you're all side by side by side and, you know, up people, kids upstairs, kids downstairs. Do you know these people today, any of these guys you grew up with? I know a couple of them, but, you know, it's like my life has travelled so much and people have moved away. Lost touch with a lot of them. I stay in touch with, with my oldest friend, who's the first guy I went to school with at the age of five. And he was our first drummer, Harry Wilson. Hmm. I'm still very much in contact with him. Were you a good student? I was really, really bright up until the age of 13. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In the system in England was the, the age of 11, you took an exam. And if, if you did good in, in that exam, they graded you into a higher school. And I passed that exam and they graded me into a higher school at the same time I moved houses from really working class blue collar shepherd's bush and literally was a mile or mile mile and a half up the road across a railway track to a different place in Chiswick 
So I was schooled in in Acton, which was, I suppose, the crow flies about four miles from from where I grew up in Shepherd's Bush. And um, Acton took in people from the kind of suburbs. And for the first time in my life, I came in contact with well-spoken English, <laughs> the upper-class <laughs> accent, and it was like a foreign language to me. And I had nothing in common with them. And I was a little guy. I was five foot seven. I weighed about seven stone. And in those schools, the first year in is always the one that is picked on. And the little ones are always the ones there because they don't hit back, you know. So I was bullied a lot in the first year. I I hated it. And that's when I, instead of loving going to school, I hated it. How did that manifest itself? Did did you misbehave? Did you act out? I was was uncontrollable. (laughs) At the same time, I found music. I'd seen Elvis on TV, and of course, we all immediately went out and soaked our hair back. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't afford brill cream or any other hair products, but it soap worked it's well. A, well. Boy, was he forward, right? uh, Yeah, and uh, so we all thought we could be Elvis. And But then this other guy came along called Lonnie Donegan, mm. and uh, I just looked at him and thought, I can do that. And I made my first guitar. Didn't have the kind of money to buy a guitar in those days. You made your first guitar. Yeah. How did you do that? Buy some wood. But how I mean, did you know how to shape it? And well, you, you, you just was it well, trial I, by I, error? I, my friend had a guitar that I kind of measured up, and this was a Spanish guitar, not not an electric guitar like you see today. And I I just figured it out. Think about it. The, it wasn't is- very good. <laughs> but the thing is, once you get the six strings on it, even though the intonation, which is, that means the scales up the fretboard wasn't very good and it was probably more suited to be a cheese cutter (laughs) (laughs) than ever a guitar it was enough to learn the three basic chords then it was g c and d or ea and b7 so you could learn three chords if you could play three chords you could play almost any of the the hit songs of the time so you made it sound good enough Made it sound good and enough. Then, then, and then to be the lead singer of the first band was the Detours? No, I don't know. We didn't really have a name. We must have had a name, though, because we won. By the way, I was every night after school, I was still going back to Shepherd's Bush because that's where all my friends were. Mm-hmm. Only a mile walk up the road. And uh, our group, every street had their own group. And um, we entered a competition, which we won. I've got to find the photograph because the photograph was in the local paper. How old were you when you recognised you could sing? Six. I sang in a choir in a high church. Did you have training? No. Worst thing could ever happen to a singer. (laughs) (laughs) A rock singer, anyway. Right. (laughs) You were right at the cutting edge of what ended up becoming the biggest thing ever in the world of music. Years away from what happened with this explosion. Well, music saved our generation. The British invasion. That was the thing that fired up that teenage... You know, when you think of back in in history, you think pre-war... There was no such thing as teenagers. You were a child until the age of, what was it, 15 in those days, 14, 15, and then you were thrown out to work. There was no, there was no time to be a teenager, so you were a child and an adult. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, after the war, and what with the music, we were also dealing with, with parents who were shell-shocked. So we didn't realise it at the time, but the more I think about it, the more they were. The very little communication with our parents, 
not like to, in today's world. So we had to make our own entertainment. We did, and, and of course, once that starts to happen in, in groups of people, it starts a movement. And that was the first teenage movement. First of all, there was the Teddy Boys. Then it became the kind of, what would you say, the, the, the Beatle period. Mm-hmm. Rolling Stones, it was blues. And then the Mods, which we were the forefront of. Then the Hippies. But prior to that, there was no such thing as recognised, visible thing of adolescence. When I think of a rock band and a lead singer, I think that's the most vulnerable you can be because you're up there and you're the one leading the show, so to speak. Where did you get the confidence to go, I can be a lead singer? I don't know. And you're right. The guitarists have seem to have the most following from rock fans. But to me, the singers are the, the true champions because they go on naked. Whatever they go, wake up with in the morning, they have to go on at night with. Right. And mm-hmm. if you've got a two-hour show in front of you and you've just woke up with a bit of a sniffle, <laughs> don't feel great, <laughs> you really have to dig in. Whereas a guitarist, they can, they can wake up with, with whatever, the hangover, the flu, you know, it didn't sound too good to change the strings, turn the amp up. They can still do it, but singers don't have that luxury. You must have liked to perform. I love singing. It's the only time I've ever, I feel completely complete. It's the only time I'm not worried about other things. What is it like, Roger? Because you sing some of the most memorable anthems and some of the best anthems of rock and roll. What is it like to do that? Well, how lucky was I to to be presented with those songs to sing? Oh, it's wonderful. And it's wonderful that here we are all these years later. For instance, we played South America last year for the first time. We went down to Brazil and uh, Chile and Argentina. And it was wonderful to be in front of like 60, God knows how many were at Rio. There was 250,000, I don't know. You you can't see the edge of the crowd. But they knew every word of every Mm -hmm. song we were singing. And that music meant so much to them. That really was humbling. Okay, so let's go back if we could a little bit. I know that you went to school with two of your bandmates, Pete Townsend and John Entwistle. I don't know when Keith came along. Well, they went to the same school. I didn't go to school with them. But they were recognisable at school. Very, They stood out and you couldn't hide those two in a crowd. They were in the year below me and I'd, I'd already got thrown out before. But somehow along the line, you guys crossed paths. Now, what was the impetus of you all performing together? How did that occur? What was the... John used to live around the corner from me, and I used to notice him because he, he's just a, he's one of those people. He had a certain charisma. He also had a very strange walk, very kind of, almost like John Wayne. And one day I've, I'm walking home from work in my ex-army boots, hobnail boots, clacking along the pavement, and I, I see him coming towards me, and he, he's holding an instrument, which was of, quite obviously a bass because it had four, four strings, not six. But he made it himself, so that intrigued me. And I, so I got chatted to, chatting to him. Was this before or after you made your guitar? By then I was making electric guitars. I uh-huh. moved on. And I asked him, are you in a band? And he said, yeah, I'm in a band. But we played trad jazz and, and I played trumpet as well as bass. I said, well, you like being a rock band. He knew who I was. He said, yeah, I might, might be. So I said to him, will your band getting any work? <laughs> no. Because <he said, laughs> I'll join your and band. I, and I lied to him. I said, well, ours are. <laughs> We're getting lots of work. <laughs> We'd done one wedding when I saw So it wasn't quite a lie. And uh, so he came along to a rehearsal and he liked, I don't know, he, he stayed. And then slowly but surely within three months, things change. When you're young, things change. We had one amplifier between us and the guy with the amp left and he was also the rhythm, another rhythm guitarist. 
So John Civil, I know a really good good rhythm guitarist, and he brought along Pete. When Pete came in into the room, you couldn't hide Pete in a crowd of a million. Right. <laughs> in those days. <laughs> what were you like? He was so recognisable, this wonderful face. And as a musician, his talent was obvious immediately because he played banjo in the traditional jazz band that John played trumpet in. So he played rhythm guitar like a in some ways like a banjo. So it's kind of very distinct style almost immediately. So we now it was you, Pete and John. Yeah, Pete, John and I, and we had a, got rid of our first drummer, which was Harry Wilson, and then another guy joined us. Did you feel that magic then? It felt good, and we everyone that joined, it was like a car changing gear. John joined me, it went up a gear. When Pete joined John and I, up another gear. And it stayed in that gear through, we had another drummer, we had certain singers, and I was the lead guitarist then, not not the singer. Singers left, we started supporting other bands. I said, well, why don't I sing and Pete take over on guitar? And we had that line-up, we got rid of our drummer because he was, he was older than us and married, and his wife didn't like him being out all night with his young blokes. <laughs> <laughs> this went on for about three or four weeks. We had a session player came in, sitting on the drums with us, and one day... Lo and behold, right in front of me on the stage was this, was this little guy in a ginger suit with bright ginger hair, with great big brown eyes, and he looked about 12. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, oh, I can play drums much better than him. He said, can I have a go? So I said, oh, why not? So we asked the, the, the session player whether he, Keith could, this was Keith Moon, by the way, could, can he have a tryout on your drums, would you mind? Anyway, we started playing just a, it was just a Bo Diddley song called Roadrunner. And it was like we found the top gear of the car mm. and someone had fired up the engine. Wow. <laughs> and it turned out to be a rocket car because it was just extraordinary. The, the chemistry was immediate. And you guys were, what, 16, 17 years old then? This was in 1963, so I'm 19. It's unbelievable. Yeah, we're just turning nine, 18, 19. Mm-hmm. Were you starting to work at that point? We were working clubs and pubs. I was earning more money in the band than I ever was in the factory. So you were factory by day, band by night? Yeah. That's a lot of shit you had going on. At yeah, that but you don't look on the band's work. Right. You know, that, right. that wasn't work right. to us. Yeah, you couldn't wait to get off work so you could go and do no. that. I want to ask about Keith Moon because what a beautiful human being. What a beautiful fuck up he was. No, I know. <laughs> I know, but like the, the when the candle was burning, it burnt such a beautiful... Oh, Keith was incredibly complicated. I think he was autistic. He had a huge talent. He had a, a vocabulary way beyond his education. Incredible. And he could get up and make speeches like you couldn't believe. Was your dad still alive when this was going on, when you were starting out the band? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, so yeah. they saw this and they saw the beginning of well, They oh, saw yeah, that yeah, your yeah. passion and your love oh, for yeah, the music. Yeah. Did they support it? I was always waiting for me to get a real job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> you have to go get a job now. But, you know... No, but Keith, Keith was incredibly complex. And, you know, all you ever hear about is how funny he was. And he, he truly could be one of the few people that could make Peter Sellers laugh, for instance. They used to hang out together. But he was also incredibly tragic and an addict, of course. And when he was straight, when he wasn't on the booze or the pills or this, that, he was very, very depressive. So there's, there's quite a story there. What was life? It must have been complicated on the road even. The only time it got difficult on the road was when the first drugs started to creep in. Prior to that, we'd all just been drinkers. And then 1965, when we started doing two and three shows a day sometimes, you start taking amphetamines to stay up 
I took them a few times, but I couldn't sing on them. They dry your throat out, so and all you do is chew your lip. So I thought, well, there's two things that can happen here. I'm either going to be a good singer, yeah. or I'm going to be a crap singer, and the band won't last five minutes. Right. So I didn't do it, but sadly, the others did. The music got faster and faster and faster until, in the end, we were doing a tour of uh, Denmark or Sweden, I can't remember. But um, they played a gig... And they played so badly. It had been steadily going down. Our first European tour. Because the singer stands out the front. He can't see the band, but he feels it. So you know. Some of the songs were getting so fast, I couldn't get the lyrics in. And it's so frustrating. And, and so I came straight off the stage, found found the stash of drugs, the pills, and flushed them all down the toilet. Needless to say, that caused a bit of a row. That's a bit of a row. <laughs> yeah. You guys were trendsetting what has now become 50 or 60 years of music, and you were at the very first part of that. Well, we were building an industry that hadn't existed prior to us. I mean, they'd had pop singers that did package tours. Everybody would play 10 minutes. But we were creating a business where bands would go on and play for two, three hours. And we, we were literally creating the industry just by feeling our way. It was really an amazing time. When we first came in, Ann Arbor was our first gig, early 67 probably. And um, we were playing to like five, five or 600 people. And then slowly but surely, the word of mouth in those days was incredible. That grew to a thousand. And then we did Monterey. And then we started then getting audiences of about two and a half thousand. We did a Herman's Hermits tour where we supported Herman's Hermits. I mean, can you believe it? The no. who? <laughs> no, no. It's like supporting Herman's Hermits. You know, can you imagine? I've often wondered what those little girls who are Herman's, Herman fans were all about 12, 10 or 12 years old, you know, sitting there with their mums, and out comes this bunch of hippies and start smashing up their equipment. But then we got to. Um, then we got to 68, 69. Our, our audiences were averaging around two and a half, three thousand. 3,000. And then we recorded Tommy. And for some reason, I don't know, coincidence of history with the Vietnam War, you know, all the protest movement, Tommy spoke to that generation in a way that they, they had a connection oh, way yeah. deeper. And our audiences went ballistic overnight. We would go to places in the middle of Iowa, where the corn was as high as an elephant's ass, <laughs> Midwest. <laughs> and there would be nothing. There would be nothing but a stage. And there would be nothing for miles. And you say, well, where are you going to get an audience? I say, don't worry, they'll come, they'll come, they'll come. And then, sure enough, 7 o'clock, there's dust on the horizon, dust. And it was like that film, build it and they will come. There's sometimes there would be 120,000 people turning up to these things in the middle of nowhere. And it was all word of mouth. It was extraordinary. I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Indiana, and I remember seeing you guys in northern Indiana, and it was madness. It was like church. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It was weird. I mean, I, and that's all I can say from, from the stage. It was like the weirdest thing. Not that we got paid anymore. No. <laughs> At least your accommodation. Someone made improved, an awful lot right? of money. All right, no. Were you more nervous playing in front of 120,000 people no, than. Because no, no. by that point, it doesn't. No, I, I'm more nervous with a small crowd of five mm. people than I, than I ever am with 500,000. Mm. And I don't play any differently. When I sing, I give it what it demands. And I don't do it any differently for, for one person than I do for mm -hmm. a million. What was the timeline from when Tommy was released 
until you made the film? The album came out in 69, and, and when we started performing it on stage, and of course we did Woodstock, because we were playing it as an opera, we, you know, this was in the days of, we used to call it rock and roll hype. Where rock and roll hype? Hype. Yeah, hype. hype. Never. You, everyone needs hype. <laughs> <laughs> I like that expression. You got to hype things up, that. you know. So we build it as an opera, and we went around Europe playing opera houses and build it as an opera, rock opera. Mm-hmm. And then we played the New York Met. And as soon as we started playing it as an opera, because it was one continual piece of music that tells a story of this person, it had an effect on me that I built this character up that became identified oh, yeah. as Tommy. I'm not Tommy, but it was just an acting job. And I also, at that time, had met my future wife, who, who had given me confidence that I'd never had before. You know, I was the curly-haired... To, have, to be a mod with curly hair <laughs> was almost... was As almost like, like, down. like having a dose of the clap, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I had no confidence, very low self-esteem. And then I met this, this wonderful woman who became my wife, Heather, and uh, the first time... She woke up next to me. She woke up screaming, "You're here!" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I used to spend hours straightening, straightening my hair because no one liked curly hair in those days. And of course, I, I run out of bed and try to cover it up. <laughs> and she says, "What's the matter?" I, I says, "Well, I've, I've got to go and do it." She said, "No, no, no, no! It's beautiful! It's beautiful!" <laughs> Oh, that's so and that, wonderful. And that changed my life. Uh-huh. I mean, the, the ah. fact that this beautiful woman, who I immediately fell in love with, I mean, she is before beautiful. she said that, I, I, I was very worried because I was just getting divorced from my first wife. So I was extremely worried that I'd now fallen in love again. <laughs> <laughs> you were in Tommy, and then you've done a bunch of other roles in TV and film and well, acting. Well, what happened that Ken Russell was chosen as the director of Tommy. And Ken was legendary in those days. I mean, he was a real progressive director, imaginative, real ballsy director. And he asked me to play Tommy, and I, th- I said to Ken, I'm, I'm not an actor, I'm a singer. He, he said, don't worry, you'll, you'll do it standing on your head. And because it was music, it was easy for me. And he made it work. Were you married at this point? Or were you, I was married, yes. You were married? Yes, yes. I got married in 1971. Anyway, the film was a huge success, and towards the end of filming of Tommy, Ken asked me to play Franz Liszt in his next film. Of course, wow, wow. This is wonderful because I was learning so much on the film set, and I just loved it. I thought this is great. Trouble was, I knew absolutely nothing about being a real actor. <laughs> I've never spoken a line of dialogue in my life. And uh, needless to say, Listomania, <laughs> uh, which is now a huge cult film, Ken wasn't a scriptwriter and the dialogue was appalling. And I didn't know how to deliver a good dialogue, let alone bad dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> but some of the bits in the film are absolutely magical. So it was obviously then I'd had the ability to act, but I had to learn the craft. And I loved it so much, I just decided from that moment, I was just going to go out and do anything. If I got offered the smallest little part somewhere, it wasn't about ego for me. I just, I loved the craft. And I thought, I'm going to go out and learn it. And so I did loads of little things. And I loved it. I loved it. I don't love it anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. Why? The business has changed. Reality TV changed a lot of it. Oh, my God. There's very few good films made that would interest me. Even worse, there's fewer and fewer really, really great directors. You also had an amazing cast. You know, in those days, the great directors were 
were out there, yeah. And finances, people used to take chances. It's a different business today. It's all formula. So I've lost my love for it. And I don't want to go into theatre. I've done theatre. I've schlepped around the world doing shows away from home. I don't need the money to do it. I've got... I, I just don't want to do it. I, I want to be free to do the bits of my life that I've missed doing the other stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, part of your uh, important life's work today, and I think that one of the things that you clearly will be remembered for, is your charitable work. You were deeply involved with the Teenage Cancer Trust. What's the backstory of your involvement with that and what led us to today? Well, uh, Teenage Cancer Trust was a charity started in England in 1989, was it? But it's uh, 29 years ago. Where does that take us? And it was started by my GP, my my doctor and him and his wife, they're both doctors. They worked in our National Health Service and they, they noticed by going to hospitals that there was this huge problem with teenagers with cancer being isolated. They noticed that uh, 15, 16, 17-year-olds were in beds next to two-year-olds, babies, right. five-year-olds, you know, and they just noticed how much psychological suffering was this, this was causing you know being as good doctors they were they followed the first rule of medicine which is often forgotten today and the first rule of medicine is to you observe the patient they observed they observed these adolescents and young adults in isolation suffering psychological huge psychological damage by either being with children under the age of 10 or adults sometimes geriatrics dying of cancer so you can imagine both ends of the spectrum it's not good for children to have teenagers next to them. Not good for teenagers to have children next to them. It's not good for older adults and geriatrics to have teenagers next to them. So it's a win-win-win situation. And a light bulb went on in my head that this is such a simple idea. But their idea was that we were going to build refuges within the hospital. A refuge where they can just have a place to themselves and be with each other. And it, it was a simple idea at first. We never thought that it would get to wards where we would have beds and all that. This was just a place to hang where they could get out of bed and sit down and be with other teenagers. And, and what we found out once that started, they gave the National Health Services, because we've got a different system in England, it's all social medicine, which has got its good points, but it's also got some really bad problems. But what we found was that we know that they were getting big improvements on the medications just by having psychologically happy patients rather than isolated, miserable ones. Anyway, so I got involved with that as, as a patron way back in 89. And I didn't do any... We did fundraising. The Who did some things. Pete did some things. You know, we gave them money and it grew. Uh, in 10 years, we raised about £10 million. And we had six spaces given to us in hospitals. But in, I think it was 2000, they told us that two of the whole hospitals were being pulled down. And if we wanted to have what we were doing in the new hospital they were going to build. They weren't going to give us any space. We would have to buy the space and build that bit of the hospital. So we said, all right, we'll take it on the chin. <laughs> okay, I and, I, and, I, and that's where, the, where I got seriously involved because I thought they, you know, what they need now is they need awareness. The doctor's names were Adrian and Myrna Whiteson. And I promised them that if the Who ever got back together, we would do a benefit for them and... Whatever money rap would raise with DVDs, uh, live album, which in those days was a big business, it could could raise potential mm -hmm. quite a lot of money. Uh, the Who would do that, and so we got to two thousand. The Who were back together. We got together 
late late '69, we got together to do Neil Young's Bridge School in up in uh, San Francisco. How many years were you not together? Oh, well, on and off, oh, yeah. uh, '89 <laughs> to about ten years. A long time. No, well, no, there was a tour in '96. So this was about about four years, but one, we did one tour in ten years. So. The Who were back together. I put a show on at the Royal Albert Hall. The Who put a show on. And I invited lots of people to join us, people like Eddie Vedder, Noel Gallagher, Brian Adams. And they all turned up. The music business turned up. And because of that event and, you know, the interest from the press, they started asking about Teenage Cancer Trust. And I had the opportunity to tell them what it was all about. Thanks to them... And I have to say thanks to them, because if they hadn't publicised what we were doing and the reasons why we were doing it, nothing would have happened. But they got it like I got it. They thought, well, this, this, this totally makes sense. Very progressive at that time. Very progressive. Nobody was thinking about... No, no. All anyone thinks about is cancer research and very expensive drugs. There are a lot of things you can do that are far cheaper that will give you huge benefits to the, to the success of the treatments. And there's many other kickbacks with it as well. You, we get less burnout for the staff because they're happier in their work. Because the units that we've got in Britain, all I can say, it's like, it becomes like a club. Parents meet, so the parents are happier. They can unload the trauma that, that they're living with. The staff are happier, so they burn out less. So there's, it's a win, 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 win situation. In reality, every unit that we build in England now is probably running around three million pounds. You don't need lots of beds and it's getting more and more and more to be outpatient. You do need some beds because sadly they don't all survive. It is now the standard of care. Well, yeah. And, and our health service, have they've accepted that, but they still don't give us any money. No, we, but, we it, still but today have to it's the standard of care. I mean, everywhere you go, um, Teenage Cancer Trust and now Teenage Cancer America is the standard of care for this age group. Well, that's what I fought for. But my mind, and you know, I've been quiet about this up to now, is that just as in in the 1800s, they started the first children's hospital in Paris because they recognised that children should never be next to adults in, in, in a hospital ward. I think that Teenage Cancer Trust and Teen Cancer America, Canteen in Australia, this is the start of where the hospital system will change, that any adolescent and young adult will never have to go and be isolated in a hospital ever again. Why not just have sections of the hospital where they are treated, where they can be together? Because you will create a happier environment. They won't fear going to the hospital. They won't hate every minute of it. But someone has to say it and someone has to start it. I think we started it myself. I think that's where it will end up because I think the clinicians will in the end demand it. The recognition, though, that you have and that what you've done here has created an organization that is now known worldwide and it's got an impeccable reputation. There's no scandal. There's no bad behavior that's going on. You have to be very careful here. You know, everyone who runs anything, you've always got the chance of getting a bad seed in the barrel. Yes, we run a very tight ship. You know, you know the staff rating of the Teenage Cancer Trust. It runs on very few people. Teen Cancer America at the moment is running on a shoestring. We haven't the money to employ the people that we really need. And we've got great supporters, the supporters we have got. You know, like the Fowlers up out in Cleveland. Chuck and Shaw Fowler, what they've built in Cleveland. It's unbelievable. Uh, 
I suggest that every hospital in the country pays a visit to Cleveland Children's and Rainbow, Rainbow's Hospital and looks at that unit for adolescents and young adults and say, this is what we need to achieve in the future because it is absolutely so special and they've done such a great job. And you just know by walking in there that that's going to have a huge effect on the patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fantastic. And it's overwhelmingly happy. And it's overwhelmingly sad. There are terrible, terrible sadnesses that wrap around when you lose these kids. You know, the film that you, uh, John Paul Jordan and myself produced that Hernan uh, made and directed and now in the bottom of that film, which is films a teenage cancer patient in every state in the country. And now we've lost like 11 of these kids. And it across the tape now it says deceased on such and such a day. But I would so say the, sadness, the quality of their life from what you provided, from what you did. I mean, you can't, money can't, you know, that experience See, what people that don't realize is that in child cancer, they're having more success in what they call cure. I mean, All the, the trouble is with cancer. Cure is a very big big word. Mm-hmm. And really, as a child, you're only ever in remission, really. You know? mm-hmm. But they, we get them if they regress when they're teenagers. So our numbers, in some ways, are going up because once they've been treated once and it comes back, it's even harder to treat. And that it's a kind of... Oh, it's, cancer is so frustrating. But, you, but your time that you spend on this is so understated publicly. Your heart and soul is dedicated to this. And so these charities, all three of them, are affiliated with your name and your brand. And you've pretty much, in my opinion, and you've pretty much carried the water here and have made it so that it is what it is today. And when people look at you and your life, obviously you're a rock star. But this work is unbelievably gratifying, and it is so important and monumental, and it's changing the healthcare system. And so you get a lot of a lot of kudos and a lot of thanks you from me for that. I get, and other so, I get a joy from this, and I get a reward from this that you you can't put a price on. I would like to know: Was there anybody that had an influence on your life, musically or personally, that you would talk about? Pete Townsend impresses me. His work ethic is extraordinary. His intellect is extraordinary. He's completely bonkers sometimes. But that is genius. I admire Pete so much. And in my opinion, he's one of the greatest composers. Mm. Because when you hear his songs, Mm -hmm. it's only when you see it written down as music, you realise what a composer he is. And the way his brain works. He has the balls to sing about things that very few others do. So if I had to choose one of them, it would be Pete. I love the man dearly. What do you love to do besides music and your charity stuff? I love to be at home. I love to walk. I farm. You know, I love to be with my grandkids. And I like model railways. Do you? <laughs> like so many rock stars, yeah. I don't particularly like watching television. I like listening to the radio. That's the one good thing that the BBC does. We have a wonderful radio station called Radio 4 where they have plays and science programmes, debates, philosophy, uh, book programmes. So you can't do that sitting down. You can't sit down and listen to the radio like that. But the Doing a model railway, you can listen to it while you're doing other things. You can be making stuff, painting and fixing things. It's just Your great. grandkids get into that? They, well, they love it. Yeah, they love it, but they're not allowed to touch it. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. <laughs> well, I'm going to let you out of this room, but thank you so much for coming, really. It's been great. Thanks, Roger. Yeah, thanks. On the next Say It Forward, we welcome Yolanda Hadid into our studio. 
Yolanda is probably most well-known for starring in the hit reality TV series, The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. But before becoming a star in Beverly Hills, Yolanda grew up from her humble beginnings as a farm girl in Holland and reached international success as a supermodel. She graced the pages of magazines like Vogue and Grazia and walked the runway during New York's Fashion Week. Since her modeling days, Yolanda has rebranded herself as an author and TV personality. Her memoir is called Believe Me. In it, she reveals what her life was like dealing with the disability she suffered when she contracted Lyme disease and the extent of her search for treatment. Yolanda is a super mom to her own daughters, Bella and Gigi Hadid, both of whom are successful supermodels in their own right. So join us when we rewind to the beginning with Yolanda Hadid on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Instagram.